Good morning, church. So if I understood uh, Sean's announcement right, that means we're going to bleed you and then we're going to feed you. That's how it's going to go. So it is good to be with you this morning. Have a, I have a bit of a blessing today I want to share just for a moment with you. you. You may or may not remember a couple months ago, I started a series on, on the life of Jesus. And we started out talking about um, the uh, pilot in Georgia who said, I want to fly a plane like Sully, that guy that landed the plane on the Hudson. And I just asked the question, who is it in your life that you, you don't want to fly like them, you want to live like them? And I mentioned a couple of people that are heroes of mine, they're friends and mentors, people that I would give anything if when I grow up, which is going to be a long time from now because i got a long way to go, when I grow up, I want to be like them. And, uh, and one of them's here today, my dear brother, Keith Crow, his sweet wife, Brenda, visiting uh, grandson over in Houston, had came over yesterday, um, visited the George Bush Library and experienced some C&J's barbecue, so we have blessed them. But uh, Keith, as you walk up here, I asked him to come and pray for us. Part of it is just a beautiful rhythm for me. We had the opportunity to serve in a lot of different ways. We literally have been to jail together again and again, serving uh, as chaplains in the prison. By the way, you don't want to hear either one of us sing, right? We, we, we started for a while, we'd open with a song, and we, that just stopped. It just stopped. Uh, I think it was beyond, you know, the make a joyful noise joke. I, I don't know if it was even joyful. It was, it was painful is what it was. But uh, what I love about Keith, there's many things I love about Keith, and I'm not bragging about him, bragging about the God who made him, but um, he's a guy I told you about, spends about 20 hours a week helping people that other folks forget, whether it's in the jail or in halfway houses and all that kind of stuff. But we've had pleasure, didn't we, several years where we did a class together, together mm-hmm. and uh, about over 100 people before COVID and all that. And, but you know how this is. Sometimes you have a Bible class and you're just studying. That's great. But that really became a community. We called it Connections Class. We really were. And, and so I just love, we had a rhythm, and he'd teach sometime too. I mostly taught, but, but he was the pastor of that class. He was the shepherd, prayed over him, loved him. And, uh, and I loved every week I got the chance to step in and teach over your prayers and the life that you modeled. The, other, the last thing I'll say before he prays is uh, Keith and Brenda have listened before, and I think already you respect this church because people that serve as much as you guys do appreciate a church that's mission-minded in their own. And so I just, I just wanted Keith to pray a blessing over you. I love this man, and I love this church, and I just love when folks get together that way. Is that all right? Would you pray for us? Thank you, De- Thank you Dean. I love you. love you, man. Um, I want to send you greetings from the uh, brothers and sisters in Franklin, Tennessee. They send their greetings and their love, and um, it's good for us to be here together. Will you pray with me, Felix? Dear God, um, you are so good to us. We lift your name on high this morning, God, because we're here uh, to just worship you. It's all about you, God. Thank you. Thank you for giving us opportunities and giving us breath in our lungs and giving us health and letting us just be here together to encourage one another, to love on one another, and to love you, God, with all of our being. Father, I'm thankful for um, this family at College Station. I'm thankful for um, these people here who I know are a light Mm. and a support and a help and an encouragement to the people of this community. God, how we need Jesus Christ in our lives, oh, so much. We look at our world and 
Father, sometimes we have to look away when we see what's going on in the Ukraine and places where people are suffering. Father, would you bring us peace? Would you bring an end to some of the cruelty and the injustice and the hatred that goes on around about us? And help us to do that, Father, by reflecting in our lives uh, the love of Jesus Christ. Mm. Help us to look for ways every day that we can just do good, that we can help one another, that we can show kindness and gentleness and love and patience. That's what we want, God. That's what we want to be, the people that you would have us to be. Father, we are moved every time that we are reminded of how deep your love is for us by providing a way for us when there was no way through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Father, as we leave this place, as we go forward every day, wherever life takes us, Father, help us to live a life that pleases you by acting justly, by loving mercy, and following you, Lord, every step of the way. In Jesus' name, we pray together. Amen. Amen. Man, I love you, buddy. Oh, nobody does that more than you, man. You're the man. Thank you, church, for letting me uh, bless you with this incredible guy. He lives it even better than he says it. I gave you that mic. You should have just stayed and taught, man. I'd, I'd, I'd step down for you. Um, we, are, we are doing a little mini-series as we're leading up to Easter we call Hungry. And we're just using this as a time to get ready for our Easter celebration, celebration of resurrection, more than just buying a dress or a new pair of boots, but to say, God, can, can you help us to actually be more aware of, even more hungry for the promise that you give that we celebrate on Easter? Here's the promise, that he's bringing life. And re- remember, this is so important. It's not just about Jesus's individual body being resurrected. It's not even just about your individual body, your mind being resurrected. We're studying this in, on Wednesday nights in Colossians. Here's the promise of, the, of, of Easter. It's what God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, he's doing for the whole cosmos. <laughs> Colossians 1 says, he's reconciling all things to himself in Christ. He's making everything new, it says in Revelation. And, and so can we prepare our hearts to be hungry for what it is that God wants to give us. And so we're just looking at a few Old Testament texts as we lead up to Easter, and I want to read the text we're looking at today. So if you have your Bibles or your devices, we're in Joshua chapter 5. It's just a little chunk here. It's just a, it's really an announcement, announcement from the Lord. It's an announcement from the, the writer of Scripture here about a pretty important moment in Israel's history. The book of Joshua begins, Moses has died They come into the promised land. They're on the brink here of going in and and conquering the promised land according to God's promise. And he makes this announcement. It's really an announcement. So let's read this. Joshua 5 verse 9. This is the word of the Lord. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the disgrace of Egypt from you. So this place has been called Gilgal to this day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. 
There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Again, we're trying to use this little season, this, these few weeks before Easter, to, to really get hungry, to get more hungry for what it is that God longs to give us. And, and this isn't new, really, since almost the beginning, from the early days of Christianity, followers of Jesus saw the days leading up to the Easter resurrection celebration as a time of preparation. And actually, one of the practices, we do all the time, but one of the practices that is common for these days is confession where we own our brokenness and we own the brokenness of the world. Even your prayer, Keith, brings out just how we long for the brokenness in the world to be different. And we own that and we practice it through confession. So I want to begin by modeling that a little bit. I want to make a confession and I want to do it on behalf of my gender. Here's a way to think about it. And ladies, you probably understand this, but there's something common, it seems to me, of, of the male gender that we have a tendency to overestimate the importance of small things we do. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. We have a tendency to overestimate the importance of small things we do, especially when it's things we don't normally do. Do you understand what I'm saying at all? So um, I remember a period of time, my wife was a um, stay-at-home uh, uh, wife at that time. She's doing a ton of work, but there was also just other things that were hitting in life. And I remember she was just had a lot on her plate. And I thought, even though man, she stayed at home, we could do the traditional thing or whatever, but I, I want to, you know, put my attorney hat on for a moment and prove to her that I am the best husband in the world over the next two weeks. I just kind of, that was my goal. And, and so I went around doing stuff that I didn't normally do, which I should do more anyway. I mean, I'm not talking just dishes and wiping the counter down. I mean, I actually, I know this is breathtaking. I actually got the vacuum cleaner out. Right? I like a tidy place, but I'm not the deep cleaner in the house. I'm just telling you. So I got the vacuum cleaner out. I did all that kind of stuff. And, and here's the thing. Again, I'm confessing this on behalf of my gender. Not all of us are this way, but it tends to be true. When we do things like that, you know what it is we expect? We expect a parade. Right? Just throw the confetti down. Right? Just bless us right now. I kid you not. I remember a dear friend of mine talked about one time. He came in the house and he cleaned the coffee table. Now understand this, he cleaned the coffee table. The mess was usually his anyway. It's his magazines, it's his coffee cups, all that kind of clean the coffee. He literally wanted his wife to come in and swoon for the great effort that he had engaged in and the work he'd done. We kind of do this. We overestimate the importance of the things we do. But, but think about this for a moment, though. There's something underneath it, as crazy as we are, that is true to human nature. Right, think about this for a moment. I do think it is natural for us as human beings to want a celebration to be proportionate to the effort we put in. That's natural. We just screw up the importance of the effort. Does that make sense? But it is natural to want the response to something or the celebration of something to be proportionate to the effort we put into it, right? I'm thinking about my friend Tim, one of our shepherds at this church. Do you realize in a couple of weeks, isn't it, that he's doing his race? He's going to ride a bike 200 miles, in a race. You realize he's going to ride 200 mile bike race. Now, I don't know what they do at the end, but they ought to part the Red Sea. They ought to have like Gatorade and Whataburger descend into his hands at the end of a 200 mile ride. Right? Don't, don't you get this? We want a celebration and a response to be proportionate to the effort that goes into something. 
When I read this passage, can I tell you one, one of the many reasons that I absolutely love Scripture is it shocks us all the time, surprises us all the time. I come to a passage like this and other places, and it reminds me how incredibly unique our God is. Now, we're going to unpack it in a moment. I just want to read the second part of that again. Just, just look at verse 10. This is the announcement at a pivotal moment in Israel's history. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. This is the report. This is the announcement in this critical time in history. And what I want you to know is the way the report is given teaches us something really important about our God and our lives. The way the Bible tells the story teaches us something really important about God and about our lives. I might have said it before. I promise I'll say it again. Sometimes the way the Bible tells us something is every bit as important as what the Bible says. You realize that? Sometimes the way the Bible tells a story or tells something to us is every bit as important as what it says. And this is one of those places. Because the way the report is given here, the announcement is declared and the celebration goes on here, the way it is told teaches us something critical about God and our lives as we lead up to this celebration of Easter. And in order to get that, you have to remember that what stands behind this text is an ancient longing and a historic hunger. Just feel this for a moment. What stands behind this announcement that happens right here is an ancient longing. It goes way back. It's a historic hunger. It goes way back. Part of what we're trying to do in this little mini-series is separate out the difference between more superficial, short-term longings and desires and the deeper ones that God is rooted in us. This is one of the deeper ones. It's not the short term. It's not the shallow ones, right? We all know what it's like to have kind of the, the more immediate, the more shallow, the more temporary longings and desires, right? Literally, there are places in our lives where we're reminded of this. Have you ever checked out of the grocery store? Do you know they've literally designed the grocery store for us to make what they call, have you heard it before? Impulse buys. Let me tell you the most recent tool of Satan. That has happened in my life. Go to the checkout line. I look down and I see this package. And on the front of the package is dark chocolate mint Kit Kats. It is a tool of the evil one, I'm telling you. Because everything inside of me wants that to just leap into my cart. <laughs> and that's an impulse buy. That's, that's a shallow desire. That's not what we're talking about here. Or this is, I don't know if this has ever happened to you. It literally happened once in my life. You know commercials like work on us, like advertising and marketing work, but it's usually a long-term game. It's like name recognition and all that. Kids, you know, I'm watching football one day, and I think it was A&W root beer commercial comes on, and they were making root beer floats. There was these frosty mugs. They scooped out big old things of vanilla ice cream, poured the thing over. I'm not lying. I looked at Melanie. I said, I'm going to Kroger. <laughs> And I got up, got a big old gallon of Bluebell ice cream, and I got some root beer, and I came back, had to put it in a mug, poured it in there. It was good, by the way. <laughs> we know what impulse longings and desires are. Understand, in this passage, it's anything but. What we're talking about is a centuries-old, historic, ancient hunger and longing. 
Think about it a couple ways. At least we're talking 40 years of being hungry for this promise to take place, right? You know that. Because before this story, the big epic story of the Old Testament is what we know as the Exodus. And God calls this man Moses to to let him use his leadership, fumbling and bumbling as it may be at times, to lead his people out of an extended period of slavery. And you know the story, God splits the Red Sea and brings them over on the other side of the land. And in that moment, God intended that generation to go claim this promise. God intended that generation to go in and to take the land, the land flowing with milk and honey. But they chose fear instead of faith, and they forfeited the opportunity to experience this promise. For how long? Forty years. And the book of Joshua begins with these words. God speaking to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. And he's not the only one who dies because right before the passage we read in verse 4 of Joshua 5, it says all of that generation other than Joshua and Caleb died. So can you imagine for 40 years they heard the promise? By the way, God didn't ignore them. He didn't dismiss them. He loved them passionately. He transformed them in the wilderness time. And yet for 40 years, they had to think about the promise and they longed and their hunger grew and grew for the moment they would enter the land. For 40 years, this hunger was growing. But a lot of you know the story and it goes further back than that, doesn't it? Because the promise we're experiencing here in this moment, that's announced here in this moment, goes back almost 500 years. Go all the way back to Genesis 12, and what did God say? He grabbed a man and a woman he would later call Abraham and Sarah, and he said, I'm going to make a promise to you. You're going to have a child in your impossible old age. You're going to have a child, and through that child, what does he say? All nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just the church, folks. All nations of the earth will be blessed. But a central part of that promise. What was a central part of that promise? The promise of the land. It's almost as if the promised land was intended to be base camp for how the journey of the blessing of God would then spread to the rest of the world. The land was so important. And he says to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you this land. Now, you want to hear the hardest part of the promise that he gave to Abraham? Can you imagine this? God comes and he says, I'm going to change the world through you. I'm going to give you this incredible place that will be home base for the blessing of the entire world. But oh, by the way, you will never see the promise fulfilled. Can you imagine that? I'm going to bless the earth. By the way, you won't see it, and your children won't see it, and their children won't see it. For 500 years, the hunger for the land promise grew and grew and grew among the people of God. Now, this is so important to recognize in the times of your life and mine where we stand in between promise and fulfillment God is still working. And he does this thing with Abraham and through the Abraham story where he allows the hunger to grow and to grow. He gives them what I call hints of the promise, appetizers for the full meal. So think about it. You have uh, Genesis 12 as the promise, but in Genesis 13, this is what God says. Go, Abraham, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I'm giving it to you. So he's already made the promise, but this is what he says to Abraham. He said, go walk it. Go walk the land from one side to the other, from the front to the back. Now hear me, does he have the promise yet? No. But God says, 
Can you feel the dirt under your feet? That dirt is the dirt of the land promise. Can you smell the fields? That smell is the smell of the fruit that will come in the future promise. And the hunger grew inside of him. Fast forward two more chapters, more hints, more appetizers for the greater hunger. God literally cuts a deal with Abraham. Maybe you've heard this story before. Using an image from the ancient covenant customs that they had. God cut an animal in half. That's what they would do if they were going to make a covenant. They literally cut a deal and they put the animals in half. And both parties would walk between the pieces. As if to say... Due to my life, what just happened to this animal if I break the covenant? What was different there, though, is God doesn't let Abraham go through it. The symbol of God's presence, a fire goes through it. Abraham sleeps as if God's saying, I don't need you. I know you won't be able to uphold it anyway. I'm going to take care of this promise. It's me. Now, does Abraham have the promise yet? No, but he smells the barbecued sweetness of the sacrifice And the hunger for the promise grows. And my favorite weird little story in the midst of all this. Go forward to Genesis 23. And you have God awakening the hunger as it often happens in our lives through suffering and pain and grief. Because in this moment, the beginning of chapter 23, it says Sarah, the matriarch of the promise. Abraham's wife has died. And then what proceeds to follow after that is a really weird story in the Bible. I know there's a lot of them, but this is really weird. Because Abraham wants a place to bury her, and there's a whole scene there where they do like horse trading and bargaining between shekels and sandals and all of that kind of stuff to get a piece of the land. And if you've ever read through that, you might look at it and say, why waste the space on the scroll for that story? It seems really strange. Only, again, I've told you before... The way the story is told in the Bible often tells us as much as what is said. And so there's a little technique that the writer and the storyteller uses there in Genesis 23. It's called an inclusion. Mark loves this. He loves to use this where you've got a story there. But at the beginning and the end are words that are repeated. And those repeated words or phrases are intended to make you pay attention to what's going on or get a significance about what's going on in the story. So here is the inclusion in the telling of this weird bartering story. In verse 2 of chapter 23, it says, Sarah died. You know what it says? Where did she die? Not just anywhere. Where did she die? In the land of Canaan. And then the weird story and bartering and dickery and trading. And so Abraham buys a plot of land there and he buries her. And in verse 19, the inclusion ends with these words. And Sarah was buried there in the cave. Where? In the land of Canaan. Don't miss it. It's as if God is saying, look, I know in your deepest pain and your deepest grief, the promise isn't fulfilled yet. And you don't have the land yet. I know it's so small, but did you catch it? He now owns a piece of it. And as you grieve and as you wrestle with the waiting time, know that the dirt under your feet and the place where you have buried your bride is in the land of the promise of God and the hunger grew. Not just for 40 years, but for 500 years. Do you feel it when you come to this text? 
Do you feel it? 40 years of hunger for their failure to be changed and overcome. 500 years of anticipation for a cosmic, world-changing promise. Now I ask you, in this moment in history, what kind of announcement would you expect? What would you expect God to say and to do after waiting 500 years? May I read it to you one more time? On the plains of Jericho, Israel celebrated the Passover, and they ate the fruit of the land. There you go. <laughs> On the plains of Jericho, they celebrated Passover. They ate the fruit of the land. There's a few of you that know my, my little meaning when I say this is the most guardian statement I've ever heard, the stewardess statement. Like, I'm just going to give you the fact. They celebrated the Passover, ate the fruit of the land. In other words, God fulfilled his promise. This is what I call an understatement. <laughs> Right? One of the greatest understatements in human and biblical history. God fulfilled a 500-year-old promise. And what is it that's going on when I come to this moment? So understated, so matter-of-fact. I ask this question, isn't it that the celebration and the report is supposed to be proportionate to the effort that went into it, right? Wouldn't you expect a little bit more? Shouldn't the celebration, shouldn't this moment be proportionate to all of the effort? 40 years of failure and starting again. 500 years of all the crazy things the patriarchs did to try to help God out with his promise. Shouldn't it be different? Listen, why this is so staggering and so important to us is it teaches us something we must not ever forget. God is not like us God is not like us. What would you do if you had the opportunity to fulfill a 40-year-old promise? What would you do if you had the opportunity to fulfill a 500-year-old promise? I would throw a parade. <laughs> I would announce it from the highest mountaintop. I would do something cosmic in the universe. I mean, like the sun would stop or something. We have fulfilled the promise, finally. God says, Plains of Jericho, they celebrated the Passover and they ate the fruit of the land. And in that moment, we learn again, God is not like us. Why? It's so important to see in a passage like this, these are one of the many places where we have to hold things in balance and tension. Do you understand this? One of the beautiful things about Christianity, it's deep and it's rich. So we have paradoxes. We understand we hold intention. Uh, the easiest one, right? Is Jesus divine or is he human? Yes, right? And so we hold in tension the divinity of God, of Jesus, and the humanity of Jesus. Or, or you might ask, is our God that we worship a God of justice or a God of mercy? The answer is yes. And anytime you hear one story on one side, you've got to hold it in tension with the other. Both are true. So what's the tension here? What's the balance here? What does this story do for us? We often, in fact, Lucado and others have written books about this, we often celebrate what scholars call the imminence of God, that God has come near, God is personal, he is close. Moses and Joshua had moments like this just pages before, take off your sandals because the place where you're standing is holy ground. God shows up personally, the imminence of God, that is so true, but we must hold that intention with what is called the transcendence of God, the complete otherness of God 
the complete God is not like us at all of God. And this is one of those stories. Hear me, this is so important. God is not like us, and aren't you glad he's not? Because if you've ever been like Israel, when they come out of slavery and they look at whatever, have you ever looked at whatever you're looking at? For them, it was an army. And whatever you're facing feels so big, you feel like an ant or a grasshopper. Have you ever been in a moment like that? In moments like that, we need a God who is not like us. <laughs> Have you ever felt like the first generation of the Israelites? Where you stare your failure in, a face, in the face so much that God has to come later and say, I'm going to roll your shame back. I'm going to push your disgrace away. Have you ever longed for that so much? In a moment like that, we need a God who is not like us. Have you ever had a moment like Joshua and Moses and Abraham and Sarah had where God has a vision for your life and he gives a calling to your life and a purpose for your life? And if you're honest, you say, who in the world am I to do that? I don't measure up to any of that. How can I go into it? In a moment like that, we need a God who is not like us. And he is profoundly not like us here. Then all of a sudden I'm reading and I'm thinking and I'm reading and I'm thinking and, and the light bulb finally turns on. Maybe, as this story talks to us, maybe the report is consistent with the effort that has been made. Think about this. Maybe this totally understated, matter-of-fact declaration of the promise is consistent with the effort that is made because maybe it's not about the effort of the Israelites and Moses and Joshua and Abraham and Sarah. Maybe it's about the effort of God. And maybe what this story wants us to know, hear me, God fulfills a 500-year-old promise and doesn't even break a sweat when he does it. God fulfills the longings of his people's soul and the cosmic blessing of the universe and it is effortless to him. I fulfilled the promise. What else did you think? <laughs> I put this image up because I'm reminded when I was a, a little kid, my brother, who is 13 and a half years older than I am and, and would use that to his advantage quite often. <laughs> Boys as we are, we'd wrestle around and he actually wrestled in high school so he knew how to do all that stuff. He also is a mechanic, incredibly gifted with his hands. But he's, like I've said this before, there's like ranch strong and farmer strong and mechanic strong. You know what I'm talking about? I can live in the weight room all day. But man, he, he had unbelievably strong hands. And so we'd grapple together and he'd do all sorts of stuff. He used to take his fingers, put them between my fingers. If I ever got there, I was dead because he'd just kind of, he'd kind of close his fingers together with these big meat hands. It would just kill me. And every now and then, we'd go downstairs. We had a pool table down there, which was largely used for folding laundry. But we went down there, and, and we would arm wrestle from time to time. If you picture it, you know, my brother, big, massive hands. And he'd put it out there, and I'd start, I'm sweating all over the place. And he's just kind of looking around. And you know what would happen, right? Whenever it was time, what would he, what would he do? Boom, and it's done. It's over. Do you see what this story is all about? When the time was right, God said, I'm going to deliver my promise, and it's not even hard. I'm just waiting for the right time. It's not even difficult for me. And here's the beautiful thing about this. It can give us an invitation to be confident in whatever it is God is leading us to. As a church or individually, as a family, it gives us confidence. 
Did you notice it in the story? I've never seen it before studying it this time. There's a lot of things that happen here. We don't have time to look at all of it, but in the beginning of the book of Joshua, they do a thing called recapitulation, retelling a story. Again, God kind of repeats for Joshua things he had done for Moses, right? You've seen this before. So literally, just a couple pages before, he has a remove the sandals, you're on holy ground moment. Joshua has it, as Moses did before. A few pages before that, he comes into the land and God splits water and they walk through on dry land. This time it's the flooding Jordan River and not the Red Sea. He, he repeats all of that. In this story, though, there is a repetition of what I call a crazy, absurd meal. It's the Passover meal. And there are two times in biblical history the Passover was celebrated in an absolutely absurd way. What do I mean by this? I, I didn't realize this until now. But if you think about the first time the Passover was ever celebrated and the first time it was celebrated in the promised land, both of them were celebrating before God had done anything. You ever thought about this? Go look at the Exodus story and God commands them to celebrate the Passover, which is what? A celebration of God delivering them out of slavery, saving from them from death, and he hadn't done it yet. The angel of death was still coming over that night. They're eating the Passover meal saying, we're celebrating, you're going to pass over us, and he hadn't passed over yet. We're celebrating, you're delivering us, and he hadn't delivered it yet. They're declaring to God, we believe that you have the power to fulfill your promise even before I see it. And then what happens here in the promised land? They come in and they don't eat manna for the Passover. They eat unleavened bread from the land of Canaan, hear me, before God had even defeated the first enemy. They're on the plains of Jericho. They're not in Jericho. Before God had ever shown them, yes, the manna stopped, but I've still got your back. So they declared it. I love the way one scholar calls it. This was an absolutely absurd and outrageous act of faith and hope. We're going to trust that the God who doesn't break a sweat will do it again in this moment. And that's the invitation for us to step into whatever he's calling us to be with confidence, knowing that the God of the next hundred years of this church is going to be just as faithful as the God of the last hundred years of this church. And the God that will take you into the future of your life will be just as faithful as the God who has done all of these extraordinary things in the past. We can trust him. Hear me. God knows when to keep his promise and when it's time, boom, without breaking a sweat. How glorious. So what I get to do on the days before Easter is to make this simple announcement to the people of God. Whether you see it or not, whether you feel the promise of your life right now or not, look around, breathe it in, because the dirt of God's future promise is already under your feet. The smell of the land of the fruit of God's future promise is already there. Remember, Easter's promise is not just about you go to heaven one day when you die. It is about God reconciling and restoring all things. And if you're like me, I look at a world and it looks like things are coming apart, not coming back together. God says, look for the hints. Look for those moments where the dirt of the promise is already under your feet. And when the time is right, I will get you there. And it won't even be hard for him. You do have challenges ahead. You do have work to do. You have purpose to live into. But here's my confidence for you. You can do all of that if you simply place your hand into the mighty hand of God.
It's the image he used throughout this story, the mighty hand of God, the outstretched arm of God, who led them not only out of slavery, but into the promised land at just the right time. Put your hand in his, and whether you're feeling the promise or not feeling the promise, you will be secure. So I end with this image. God taught me this a long time ago in my life, and he'll call it to mind from time to time. I was six, maybe seven years old, just beginning baseball, probably was even t-ball at the time. And this was my field. I actually took this picture a few months ago. My mom still lives in the house where I grew up, and so out behind my elementary school is this. There was actually a, a good infield at one point in time there, but back there was the baseball field. And had this kind of huge field area outside of it. And I remember going out one Saturday to play baseball. And I will never forget this because all of a sudden, now we lived in Virginia, it didn't happen as much as it happens here, but all of a sudden there was a windstorm that came up that wasn't predicted, we didn't know about. And for years after, I, I love the wind now, which is a good thing because I live in Texas, but for a while, I mean, the wind terrified me because of this day. Because I remember all of a sudden the stuff's hitting and, you know, mid-game, if you picture it, everybody's grabbing the bats and we don't know what's going on, pick up the coolers and we're running out. And I will never forget this feeling. I turned around to walk to try to get back to the car and I never felt so powerless in my young life because the wind was pushing me so hard I couldn't move. And I thought, oh my gosh, I, I, I can't get out of it. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified until I felt a hand grab hold of mine. It was the hand of my father who pulled me to this place. I know it's just a brick wall to you. But I will never forget that moment in my life. By the way, that hill was like Mount Sinai to me when I was a kid. I'd be like, how am I going to get up that thing? But I'll never forget being right there by the wall. And my father had me and he took me. And even though the wind was still churning and flying all over the place, I all of a sudden already had peace because he had me. And he was going to get me back to that car and back to my house and listen to me. It wasn't hard for him. So no matter what you face in your life, no matter what God's calling us to in the future that might be scary and we don't know what we're doing, put your hand in the hand of the mighty outstretched arm of God and he will get us exactly where he wants us to be, exactly when he wants us to be there and he won't break a sweat. Father God, we celebrate you because whether we see it right now or whether we're sitting outside of the cave of Sarah or whether we're just getting a taste of what it is that you want for us or whether we're beginning to taste the fruit, wherever we are, we are in your hands. So Father God, in a world that just seems to be absolute chaos, can we let that be a hunger that turns us even more to turn to you? Knowing that you have it all, and when the time is right, you're going to fulfill every promise you have ever made, and it won't be hard for you. Thank you for giving us a community to practice faith in the promise. And we pray we do this to the glory of your name, Jesus. Amen.